I'm really glad to be here. And today we're going to be in Acts chapter 3, and we're continuing our study forward in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Acts 3, 1 through 10. We're coming up on Christmas, and some of you guys are psychos who have already been listening to Christmas music for like a month and a half. Um, But we are coming up on, some of you guys were nodding like, yeah, you got a problem with it. Um, We're coming up on Christmas, and one of the things that I remember about Christmas, and and birthdays too for that matter, when I was growing up, is that, you know, just like every kid, I think, I was really excited about presents and I remember getting presents from relatives or friends uh, when a card would come with a present, right? And so you'd have like a a bag or or a gift, and then a card would be attached. And I remember tearing through the card, uh, really because my mom made me. She's like, open the card first. She always say, open the card first. I'd look at the card, and if there wasn't like a gift card or money, and I was like, okay, whatever, I don't care about that anymore. And then I would tear into the gift itself. Uh, And now, by the way, I find myself knowing why she did that, uh, to look at the card, because the card is precious because it's from an, an actual person that put their feelings and thoughts into that. And now I find myself doing the same thing for my children and saying, stop, stop being crazy for a second and, and read the card. Look at the card. Who's it from? And the reason why is because the reality is 100% of the time, the relationship with the giver of that gift is of greater value than the gift itself. 100% of the time, the relationship with the giver of that gift is far more valuable than the gift itself. In fact, the gift is not going to last near as long, usually, as the one who has given that to you. There is something precious about the relationship, and that, that card signifies something far more valuable even than the thing that is in the wrapping paper. Spiritually, I think that we run the same danger at times. And we're not kids, most of us are not really small kids, but I think that even we in our older age struggle with the same thing, and that is to focus more on the gift than on the giver. Today, we're going to look at a story in Acts chapter 3 of a man who could not walk receiving the gift of healed legs. And so Peter is going to speak powerful words to him. He's going to say, rise up and walk, and the guy's going to walk. But the fact of the matter is, they weren't really powerful words. The powerful thing were the words that came right before that. And right before he says, rise up and walk, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The focus is not on get up. The focus is on the one who can make him get up, that Jesus has done it. It's the card behind the gift. You see, we too have received the healing of God from the eternal sickness of sin. And the thing that we must value from the healing of God is not just the healing itself, but church family, we must value infinitely more so the the healer, the the God who's given it to us. And so as we look at this passage today, we have been talking already, Dusty, about the name of Jesus. Dude, what a perfect passage to read, Philippians 2. That's, That's why he's a pro, man. This is a VIP. He's the best in the business over here. Great verse to come to mind. Thank you for that, brother. We're going to focus on the name of Jesus today because there's something about that name. Amen? Let's check it out. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Let's look at it together. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. 
in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. As we've been looking at this little series in the book, it's not a little series, it's a big series in the book of Acts. What am I kidding? It's like a year and a half we're going to be here. Um, as we've been looking at the book of Acts, we've titled this Forward. The reason for that is because we're seeing that the church of God, and maybe more specifically, God through the church, is on the move. The church is on the way forward, and nothing, nothing formed against the church will ever succeed in conquering the church because God is behind this movement. It's true then, it's true now. And so I put this up there, this roadmap of the book of Acts uh, at the very beginning. I want you to see it again now, that these first few chapters, this begins in that little red circle you see in the bottom right-hand corner of that in Jerusalem. But what we're going to see as we sort of make our way through is in chapters 6 through 9, that it expands, it grows to the areas surrounding Jerusalem, and then all the way to what they would know as the end of the earth, which is the city of Rome and the Roman Empire itself. It's what is really the thesis verse of the book of Acts, Acts 1-8, which is that they're going to go be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this is the roadmap. That's sort of a thesis statement because that's what the whole book of Acts is all about. And so I want you guys to put your eyes on that from time to time. And today, while we're still in these first few chapters, the big waves are going to be made in Jerusalem centering around the temple. As we're seeing in these first few chapters, the church of Jesus Christ is established. The thesis last time we saw of the church in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, were sort of what they were known for. They were known for gathering together. They were known for fellowshipping, gathering around the teaching of God's Word, praying together, breaking bread together. These are the things that the church was focused on in the very beginning at the end of Acts chapter 2. And now the Spirit of God is going to cause an explosion in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, God's Spirit is going to explode and begin to multiply their number. It begins with a miraculous healing followed by a powerful sermon that we're going to see this week and next week. We'll look at that powerful sermon, but this week we're going to examine the healing itself. And while we're looking at the healing of a man born lame, which means he could not walk, we know something to be the case. That if those of us that are in Christ Jesus, who have been rescued from the power and condemnation of sin, though we may not be lame and be made to walk again, we have received a healing. Am I right? Amen? We've received a healing from God. And so today, there's something principle-wise that we can take from this that God heals, He saves, for three key reasons, if you're taking notes this morning. And the first one is this, to demonstrate His power or His authority. To demonstrate His power or His authority. We see something that is contrasted here. The lame beggar did not receive alms from man. We'll talk about alms in a moment. Instead of receiving alms, he received something far greater. He received healing, not from man, but he received healing from God. The healing was through the obedience of the apostles, but it was in the power, the authority, and in the message of Jesus. Look at verse 1. We're going to walk through this together. <clears throat> now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's uh, roughly 3 p.m. their time. 
John and Peter were going to worship together with presumably the church and pray together. It's what the early church was known for. Again, we looked at this last time a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 2. It says that they were devoting themselves to prayer, that they would gather together at the temple, and they would obviously pray at the temple. And so the temple was still, and if you don't know, again, I don't want to assume any information. The temple was sort of the epicenter of Judaism. It was this one location. It wasn't like a church because we have lots of church buildings, right? There was one temple, and it was the high place. That's why it says they went up to the temple. It's a high place in Jerusalem where this is where people gathered to worship. We just finished talking about Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2 where they were all gathered together to worship together in the city of Jerusalem, and they would go up to the temple together to worship. And this is what is happening here in this city, because the temple was still the epicenter of Judaism and Jewish worship. But here's the thing. These Christians are no longer uh, in Judaism, but they're still ethnic Jews, but they're no longer Jews of faith, uh, of the faith of Judaism. But as the number of Christians grew from Judaism, they still continued to go to the temple to worship together because that's what the temple was always known for. That was where they went to worship. And so even Christians would continue to gather at the temple, but not for long because soon there would begin to be conflict at the temple. And we're going to read about that quite a bit in the days and weeks to come. Look at verses 2 and 3. As they were going to the temple, it says, And a man lame from birth was being carried. Notice there's desperation here. Whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked, the man asked, to receive alms. What are alms? Almsgiving was giving money or food to the poor. It was an important part and expected part of doing justice in Judaism. They were very big on doing justice because God is a God of justice. And so they had a civil law. You read the Old Testament, a lot of what they talk about is doing justice among one another. And so part of what was expected of being a person in this society was carrying the load of loving those who were not able to care for themselves and giving to their needs. And so they were big on care for those among them who were in need. By the way, you'll notice that continuation in the early church is that they were meeting one another's needs. And the church should still be doing that. We should still be doing that, meeting the needs of the least of these and those that are struggling among us. The lame made a living by begging because they could not make a living otherwise. And the people had a responsibility to care for those who could not care for themselves. And so we see this picture that's being painted in our passage, that this desperate and dependent man on others, a man who could not walk, desperate and dependent on others for his needs, is carried, literally carried to the position of voicing his desperation. There's something to that, right? That's, that's our story, hopefully, before God. We're desperate. And so Peter and John see the desperation of the man, but Peter's response to him shows him that Jesus has much more to offer him than silver or gold. Jesus has much more to offer this guy than mere money. Look at verse 4. Peter directed his gaze at him, and did, as did John, and said, look at us. You may read that and think, that sounds kind of rude. It's not supposed to sound rude. It's meant to grab the attention of this man. Something important is about to happen. And I really think there's even an extra layer to that, that it's supposed to grab our attention as the readers. It's sort of this way of Peter telling us, hey, look at us. Something is about to go down. Verses 5 through 7 say, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So maybe some gold or silver, a few coins. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. 
in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. What the man thought he needed here is contrasted with what God had for him, which was far greater. He thought he needed one thing. God knew his greater need, and he gave him that thing. In my home, our kids are always begging for snacks, like all the time. If it were up to them, it would just be like a, a drive through They'd just run through the kitchen, grab a snack, and come out like all hours of the day. They're always begging for snacks. And to be honest with you, it's pretty annoying. Pretty annoying. Because a lot of them can't open the snacks. And it's just, it's like, why do I even, you know, why do we even have meals at this point? Just eat Cheez-Its all day and gummies. They're always begging for snacks. And this, there's, there was a time that we said no. Uh, we say no a lot. But this time specifically, this time we had to say no. Usually it's, no, it's close to dinner. No, it's close to lunch. No, get out of my face. Something like that, you know. <clears throat> well, this time we said no because we had secretly planned to take them to do something special. I think it was get ice cream or something like that. And so we had secretly planned to do something special. And so we were saying no to their typical snacks. And, and you would have thought that I told them that they were never going to eat again. You know, just weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, tearing their clothes like sackcloth, that kind of thing. <laughs> complaining against their father who loves them as if I'm not going to care for them. And my thought in that moment was, if you knew what I know, then you would not be asking for what you're asking, but you would be patient for what I have for you. You would trust me. If you knew what I knew, you would realize that you're asking for something that you don't actually want. You want what is greater, but you can't know that. You you see where I'm going with this, right? Guys, the reality is that we often treat God like the lame man did Peter. Asking for a small thing when God wants to give us so much more. And I'm not talking about money. We may ask for money, but the currency of the kingdom of God is far more valuable. We may ask for healing, but God may be teaching you something that you can only learn in the struggle. We may ask for resolution, but God may be building something in you that can only be built in the conflict. We ask for clear direction, but God may be teaching you that faith means walking with him when the path forward is unpredictable. Sometimes we don't really know what we're asking for, and we need to trust that God knows all things and has a greater picture when we may not be able to see that picture. And some of you guys are living that right now. We need to let our requests be made known to God, as God's word says. God wants your posture of desperation to take this example at hand. But we need to trust two things about God, and you'll see these on the screen behind me. We need to trust that, number one, God has all things at his disposal. I mean, he has all power, all authority in every way. God has all things at his disposal. And as a result of that, we got to understand that God loves us. God loves you and will always, hear the word always, will always do what is best for you. In your difficulty, in your conflict, in your need, in your struggle, in your confusion, make your requests known to God. Please do so. He wants that. He wants you to be the child that comes to the Father and says, I have needs. I need to understand. But at the end of the day, you need to understand that God has everything at his disposal And he always loves you and will always do what is best for you. I mean, isn't that a comfort? You see, what the man thought he needed is contrasted with what he really needed, not just to have healed legs, but to know the true healer. And we don't want to get lost here. It's not really about the legs. It's about the one who will give him 
healing. And Peter wants the man's legs to be a sign, not in and of itself, but a sign that points to the one who healed them. That's why he says, in the name. That's why he says, right, well, he didn't just say, get up and walk. He didn't just whisper it to him either, did he? He proclaimed it. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up. In the name, get up. The one who was murdered here just months ago, he was truly the son of God, is what he's saying. In the name of the guy that all these people put to death, he's going to make you walk again. Who was he really? The son of God. In fact, the phrase in the name is one that maybe we can just blitz by and not give much thought. That phrase literally means according to all that he was. It's not just in his name, it's according to everything about him. The word name is from the Greek root word anoma. It's not just an identifier, it encompasses the essence of the whole person. In this case, it's Jesus's, in the name of his perfect character, in the name of his absolute sovereignty, in the name of his unrivaled authority, in the name of his unlimited power, in the name of his true identity of God, as God made flesh, rise up and walk. There's something to that name, y'all. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was, was not the words of a magic spell that Peter was saying, some sort of incantation. It wasn't that. It was the very basis of the healing. <clears throat> that Peter is saying, I'm about to exercise authority over this body, but it's not me. In the name of Jesus, who has authority over body, mind, and soul, and we learn from the Gospels, not just that, but authority over sin itself. Notice what happens when the man receives strong feet and ankles. He doesn't complain that he didn't receive a coin. That'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? He doesn't complain and say, oh, well, this is nice, but I mean, pocket's still empty, man. You got to, can you break off something for me? It's not what happens, right? He doesn't complain. He rises. It says he's walking and leaping and praising God. Guys, may we all do the same when God gives us what we need, even if it is not what we ask for. Which is the second thing that I want you guys to focus with me on this morning. And that is that God heals, he saves to prompt his praise. To prompt his praise. Does he not? To prompt his praise. Peter has given a blessing to the man. It wasn't gold or silver, but it's a blessing all the same. But his main purpose was to use the miracle to bring attention to Jesus. <clears throat> Peter could have quietly healed the man and gone about his business, but he didn't do that, right? That would not have provided him a chance to be Jesus' witness in front of the crowd. And we're going to see Peter's public sermon as a result of this next week. And it feels kind of weird, to be honest with you, <coughs> to sort of bite this part of the passage off without talking about that. But for the sake of time, I wanted to focus on one at a time. But we're going to see this big declaration from Peter We'll see the public aftermath later on, but we see a part of that here, which is praise. Starting in verse 8, we see the aftermath. It says, <clears throat> and leaping up, he stood and began to walk. Notice he didn't just kind of get up like some of you guys do. Ugh. Right? Some of you guys, man, ridiculous. Some of y'all are just dramatic. No, I'm kidding. No, that's not what happens, right? He pops up, boom. God that's never walked in his life. You, you don't walk in for 10 minutes, and you're like, man, these knees are feeling it. He hasn't walked in years upon years upon years ever, and he pops up. Why? Why is, that, why is that a significant detail? Because it's a definitive miracle that Jesus has restored this guy from zero to 100. Immediately, he pops up. Let's keep going in verse 8. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping 
and praising God. This is why Peter had the man look at him and how and know how he was healed. Peter could have mumbled a prayer as he passed the man, but he didn't mumble a prayer as he passed the man. He made sure the people around them knew the name in which he was healed. He made sure they knew the name. He goes from being carried and begging to walking and leaping. But the most important part is the next part, praising God. In other words, he opened the card. He knew who gave it to him. Guys, do not be so about the gift that the giver is an afterthought. You'll see this on the screen behind me, that the gift is wasted if it does not cause us to fix our gaze on the giver. The gift is wasted if it does not cause us to fix our gaze on the giver. In other words, our salvation, as beautiful and precious and wonderful as our salvation is, our salvation is not merely for our good. It is for his glory. So walk and leap, but praise. There's a good formula there to exercise the fact that we have received it, but ultimately remember who gave it. You know, we leave this place uh, Sundays, and I think, I mean, I sure hope that when you leave, you feel in, like you've received a blessing. That's part of my job, is that you don't just feel beat up like a, like a heavy bag, but you feel encouraged uh, that God hasn't just deconstructed you, but that he has constructed you and built something encouraging in you to, to walk away from this place feeling blessed. And as much as I want you to be filled up when you're here and blessed when you come here to be encouraged and comforted and strengthened, All of the above is wasted if you don't turn around and give praise to the encourager, to the comforter, to the strengthener. We can't just be about the blessing. We need to turn around and realize who is the one that gave it to us. And it wasn't the preacher. It was God. We need to testify, to use a word that maybe is losing some of its meaning in our culture. Testify, to talk about what God has done you know, when we do baptism, we, we do this, the testimony thing, right? And people read their testimony in the waters. Man, I, I love doing that. I've made no, no secrets about that, that I love doing that. I love when people faithfully read their story because it's not just reading a story and putting a spotlight on an individual. They're reading a story and putting a spotlight on God. That's wasted testimony. If all it says is, look at my life now. Look at my life now. Ultimately, it's to say, look at the God who did it. Look at what he has accomplished. And when I have conversations about those testimonies, we talk about, and this is not about the individual. It's about God's work in the individual. And so, guys, I would encourage you. You may not be the one that's going to read your testimony. But, man, as you go, as you live in your home, in your workplace, in your classroom, across the street with your neighbor, your, your motivation should not be, look at my life. Your life's in shambles apart from the God who's done something about it. It's not look at my life. It's can I tell you what God did? Can I tell you what God has done? That's bragging on God. We could do that because that's praise. That's not just falling in love with the gift. It's falling in love with the giver of the gift. And listen, tonight at the Harvest Supper, a lot of you guys, hopefully, I sure hope so, we're going to have a lot of silence. A lot of you guys are going to get up and share your story. But man, I'm telling you right now, I got one rule. When you do that, you put the spotlight on God, not on yourself. Because at the end of the day, we're wasting the time. If we don't turn around and say, y'all, look what God did. At the end of the day, that is why we're here, is it not? To say, look what God did. The healing for us, for him, then resulted in praise. And the fact of the matter is, praise immediately in this passage, it's really neat, immediately it becomes missional. 
immediately that praise becomes missional. He doesn't just say, hey, let me just enjoy this. He immediately goes and people are like, what is the commotion? That guy's really excited about something. He immediately becomes missional with what God has done in his life. And that's the third thing. Why does God heal? Why does God save? He does it to reach his people. He does it to reach people. We're going to see this in just a moment in the next couple of verses. When God does big things, there is a social component to it. This is why Jesus had such a hard time. I think this is funny. You go read the Gospels, especially early in the Gospels. Read like Mark, for example. There's a social component when God does big things. This is why Jesus had such a hard time early in the Gospels getting people to keep a lid on it when he went around Galilee healing people. He's like, hey, okay, look, hey, I, you can see now, but don't tell anybody about this because, like, I'm trying to keep a low profile at least for a little while. Eventually, every knee will bow. Am I right, Dusty? But for now, just chill out. Like, enjoy it. And what happens? He went out and started telling everybody. I, just think, I was reading it this week, and, and, you know, just found it funny. that I mean, is, is that really a realistic expectation from the Son of God? This guy, I mean, you've never seen before. you never walked before, and he's expecting you to just be like, eh, it's fine. I'll just walk around and not tell anybody about it. If I find $20 in my pocket, I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> Much less if I suddenly begin to walk because the Son of God has made it so. Look at verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> all the people, and all the people saw him. Look at that. They saw him walking. What else was he doing? Praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat, lame, desperate, right, at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. Your translation may say astonishment. We're going to talk about that word in just a moment. They stood there filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You see, in Acts, miracles attracted attention so that the apostles could preach to the people. There was always a purpose, always a reason. It wasn't just the healing. It was that people looked around and saw, what's going on here? And the apostles step into that void and say, let me tell you about it. It's always the case. This miracle would catch the attention of the Jewish ruling body. It would begin the long road of church persecution, in fact. Saul would begin to hunt down Christians because of things like this. But the fact of the matter is, it did bring on persecution, but it also brought on church explosion. The church number began to multiply and multiply, and God saved and saved and saved. And while people were bringing death upon them, God was bringing life to them. Persecution caused the gasoline to be thrown on the flames of God's early church. And we see in here a big theme that we'll see really for the next several weeks. This is this theme of the old temple versus the new temple. And not, without getting too much in the weeds here, the old temple is this building we've been talking about that they've been gathering to. But later on in the New Testament, <clears throat> Paul is going to say, the same guy who's murdering Christians, is going to say, your body is what? The temple. Your body is the temple. What was the temple? Why was it a big deal? It was the place where they worshiped. But it literally recognized, represented among them, God's dwelling place. It was God's presence among, it was the house of God's presence among the people. The old temple was this building. This, hey, this is where God's presence is. But suddenly, Paul comes on the scene and says, now God's presence is not this building, it's your bodies. God is in you. When we say, ask Jesus into my heart, the Bible never uses that language per se, but it's based on this reality, that God now takes up residence, not in a building. God takes up residence in the lives, in the hearts 
hearts of his people. And the reason that's significant, again, without getting into the weeds so much, you guys remember back in, some of you do remember really well, better than I do, the, the late 90s and early 2000s when we started to see people go from a landline in their homes to a, a mobile phone, like a, like a cell phone. Why do we even call it a phone anymore? That's, that's part of my, my, my standard routine. You didn't receive it very well, but that's okay. I'll work on it some more. Uh, why do we even call it a phone? It does everything. We don't even talk on the phone. Anyway, y'all didn't receive it. That's okay. Let me just take a moment here to regather. Now, look, the, the reason I'm making that comparison and that contrast is that the landline went from being a fixed location. Over more time, time more and more people began to cut the cord and at least at least add on mobility, if not ditch the landline altogether. And the reason why is because the ability to communicate had evolved beyond a fixed location settled into a wall. Isn't something else better than that, that you can now have it on the go and be mobile instead of having to be stationed and fixed right there in that central location? The reason I say that is that here what we see in this passage and what we're going to see for several weeks is that communing with God had been fixed at the temple. It had been like a landline fixed at the temple. But now the Spirit of God resides in the new temple, which is the bodies of all believers. In other words, God's presence has gone from among man, there, to in man, everywhere. The book of Acts is not only deconstructing a limiting Jewish understanding of the temple, but it's emphasizing the explosion of the Spirit beyond its walls. Now, why does that matter? Luke mentions the temple in this passage four times in just the first three verses. Six times total he mentions the temple in these verses, verses 1 through 10. Being lame, not being able to walk, having this infirmity, it meant that the man was barred from certain temple privileges. Additionally, sacrifices, which they offered a lot of sacrifices, sacrifices that were lame were considered unholy and unacceptable to be offered to God, which may have caused some cultural stigma to sort of trickle in. And the huge thing here is that this healing overcomes not only temple boundaries, it overcomes temple restrictions. The irony is a lame man that is treated ugly in his culture sits at a beautiful gate outside at the hour of prayer while the so-called holy men pray inside. The irony is that the place meant to embody the God of life had become, to use the gospel's words, a den of robbers. That while God was giving life now on the outside to 3,000 plus and now to a man born lame, God is now on the go and giving life as he goes. And his people go in light of that beyond the temple everywhere they go and they give him praise. God's location is not fixed. It is now a wildfire. The word here, I pointed it out a moment ago in verse 10, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. It may be translated astounded in your translation. It's where we get the word ecstasy from. It's ecstasis. It's from Luke chapter 5 as well in chapter 26 where Jesus heals another lame man. What it means is that when people saw this, they stood there and just were wowed. They're like, wow, look at this thing that has happened. But I want you to hear me say something. Awe and astonishment are not enough. Awe and astonishment are not enough. Now, they can lead to repentance, but we don't want people to just know what is happening in us and in our church. We want them to meet the God who is doing it. If all that happens with what God is doing in your heart and at fellowship is that people stand amazed, it's not enough because that's not enough. We want them to not just be astonished, to receive ecstasy. We want them to receive the one who's done it, 
We want them to see that God has done something and not just be amazed, but be repentant and to turn from sin and find salvation in that name of Jesus. Guys, when God changes people, other people take notice. We don't just want to reach people. We want God to change people. And I say that to say that God didn't save you just for you. God did not save you just for you. Use your story to witness to other people. Use what God has done in you to witness to those in your life. This healing resulted in praise, and praise itself became missional. And to give another plug to the power of testimony, guys, when God's word penetrates a heart and we testify, I've heard so many stories. You don't get to hear all the stories that I hear. I try to share them with you. But when somebody reads their testimony in those baptismal waters, I'm talking about every single time I hear some sort of story, whether it be firsthand or secondhand, of somebody that said, that's my story. God really used that to minister to me. We've had people baptized as a result of those testimonies before. At the very least, their heart's enriched. But it is so missional in its emphasis. And when I see some of these testimonies, before you read them or before you hear them, I think of some of you. Because I know that some of you will be reached because of these testimonies. You know why? Because the result of praise is missions. And when we testify and celebrate what God has done, it touches hearts. Because that's God's method. It's been his method for a long time. That when we praise God and point to God, other people take notice. Guys, do not treat this building like a fixed temple. I'm giving a lot of attention to the baptism testimonies, but the reality is we are meant to go in the name that is above every name, in the power of that name, in the praise of that name, in the wide reach of that name, and say, can I just tell you what God did? Don't treat this building like a fixed fixed temple. Use it as a mobilizing building that sends us out to proclaim God's goodness. God's work goes with you. It does not stay here. That this all happens in the name of Jesus means that though the voice is Peter's or John's or some other human instrument, please hear this, Jesus is ultimately the one at work in the book of Acts. That's why it says earlier in this, in chapter 1, it says, I've told you, O Theophilus, all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. That means here's all the things Jesus is going to continue to do and teach through human instruments. Fast forward 2,000 years, and here we are. Guys, listen, the instruments have changed over the years, but make no mistake, what you are seeing happen here at Fellowship is not the work of man. It is the work of the same Jesus. It is the work of God. And our number is multiplying. And we got a girl here from Eswatini. Guys, God is doing something, but I want you to understand this is not the work of man. It's not the work of your staff. It's not the work of of volunteers. It's not our, it's not your work. It is God's work. The instruments have changed, but the author has not. Amen? God is at work. Why does he work? He works to demonstrate his power, his authority. Let us make our requests known to him, but in all things, trust that God has all things at his disposal, that he loves you and will always do what is best for you. And some of you guys are in a season of life right now when you need to remember that God has ultimate authority and that you're going through the fire and flames right now. And we sang about those flames a moment ago, and you feel that because you're in the middle of it. And if that's you right now, Those two things, you must hang on them 
that God has all things at his disposal, all things under his authority, but also that he loves you. You know, all things under his thumb is not good news unless he also loves you. There's a lot of, there have been a lot of bad men with great power, and it has not been a good thing. But it's a good thing that God has unlimited power because he also has unlimited love. He loves you. Trust in his power and his authority. He also has healed you to prompt his praise. And I'll just reemphasize that the gift that you have received if you're in Christ is wasted if it does not cause you to fix your gaze on the giver. It's so easy to cling to that gift and forget that there's a card that came with it. But let us leave here and understand, while we receive a great blessing, there is a greater blesser, God the Magnificent. And finally, that praise has a purpose, and that is to reach his people. Perhaps you're here today because God is reaching for you. And you have maybe come to church here a few times. Maybe not. Maybe this is your first time with us. And you've been unchurched. Uh, and maybe you, you've been wrestling with some doubts. Maybe you've had some, some things happen in your life lately that have caused you to question and say, like, maybe, maybe there's something more to life than just working really hard and making some money and, be, and pursuing the American dream. And God is impressing on you and saying, you've got a sin problem that if you were to die today, you would spend eternity apart from God. And while that is bad news, I'm here to tell you there's good news. That Jesus stepped into our position of desperation. And he saw us as a beggar who could not provide eternal life for themselves. And Jesus became flesh. He even became more than that. He became sin who knew no sin. That in him we might become something we have no business being. And that is the righteousness of God. And some of you are here today, and God is reaching for you. He's extending that hand. And your problem is not your legs. Your problem is not your worry. Your problem is not your stress. Your problem is not your doubt. Your problem is your sin. That you have a big problem. And that is that apart from a saving work of God, you don't have eternal life to look forward to. You have eternal condemnation. And that's not an unloving message for me to preach. It's a loving one. Because there is danger barreling down at you. But I'm here to tell you that there is a rescuer that is with you, arm in arm, ready to link with you and take you from the condemnation into eternal life. He's extending his hand and a simple question of response. How long will you refuse the hand that says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk? All you have to do is surrender and give it to him and receive him.